Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. Congratulations to everybody who successfully guessed that I was in Argentina for my vacation. Your prizes are in the mail. For everyone else, you'll still get a little sticker and the consolation that I will probably go on vacation again, so you'll have another chance. Now, on with the show. We first spoke to Marion Turner, an English professor at Oxford University, in 2019 about her award-winning biography of Geoffrey Chaucer. In her latest book, The Wife of Bath, a biography, Turner paints an unconventional portrait of Chaucer's most famous and clearly favorite character, a bawdy, middle-aged, middle-class woman of multiple marriages. Alison of Bath is but one of the many pilgrims Chaucer gathers around the table in his Canterbury Tales, but she is the only one to have inspired everyone from Shakespeare to James Joyce to Zadie Smith and an equal number of misogynist critics, whether they were writing on vellum or in a 20th century academic journal. Marion Turner is the J.R.R. Tolkien Professor of English Literature and Languages at the University of Oxford, and she joins us today to discuss The Wife of Bath in her time and beyond. Thanks so much for coming back on the show, Marion. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Can you explain for those of us who are a little rusty on Chaucer, what makes The Wife of Bath so different from, one, I guess, all of the other characters in the Canterbury Tales, and two, all the other female characters who came before her. Yeah, so really important to make those two points. Thank you. So in the Canterbury Tales, Chaucer gathers a group of people in a pub in in, um, in South London who are going to go on the pilgrimage. And this group is varied. It's socially varied. So as well as the knight, there's people such as the miller and the cook and the man of law and the merchant. It's not that varied in terms of gender. So there's only three women who tell stories and two of them are nuns. So the wife of Bath is the only secular woman on the pilgrimage, the only woman on the pilgrimage who's not a nun. So that immediately, you know, really differentiates her from everyone else on the pilgrimage and gives her a very particular kind of voice. And then bearing that in mind, it's particularly interesting that we also hear more about her than we do about any other pilgrim. So the pilgrims tend to speak prologues before their tales, but most of the prologues are very, very short. There are three that are longer, but the other two that are longer are a couple of hundred lines. Hers is over 800 lines. And in the prologue, that's when she tells us about her life, but also about her thoughts, her memories, her feelings, her interiority. So we actually a face with someone who is a different kind of character, someone to whom we have more access than we do the other characters. And the fact that Chaucer does that with this secular woman is really fascinating. And that, I suppose, leads me then to your, to your second question, about how is she different from other women in literature at the time? I would broadly put them into two different groups. So on the one hand, the idealised women, and they tend to be princesses, queens, you know, damsels in distress who get rescued by knights, marriageable daughters, virgins, those kinds of women, and also nuns and saints. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there are whores, prostitutes, witches, old crones, women who procure girls for men, those kinds of women. So the, the bad kind of woman. And in literature, we just don't have anyone like the wife of Bath. And so 
in my book, The Wife of Bartha Biography, I argue that she is the first ordinary woman in English literature. So we have a woman here who is middle-aged, sexually active, working, flawed in all kinds of ways. And for the first time, this kind of woman has a voice. And so although I'm saying that she's ordinary, she's also obviously extraordinary. So what does she talk about in her life that makes her so interesting? And how does, there's these two parts of what she says. She has her prologue and then she has her tale. How do these parts relate to each other and why do we care what she says? So in her prologue, she essentially is talking about herself. And then in the tale, she tells a separate story. So I think, wow, there are so many reasons why we care. So in her prologue, she tells us, I mean, the really fascinating story of her life, because this is someone who has been married five times, who has experienced all kinds of things in these relationships, who has travelled widely, who has tricked her husbands in all kinds of ways, who's got her own way, who's had friends, who's really challenges all kinds of all kinds of people who oppose her, who speaks against church authorities, who speaks against misogynists. So she has a lot to say for herself. Um, I think we care for a whole number of reasons. So one is that some of the things she talks about in this prologue are extremely serious. So in particular, she tells us about domestic abuse. She tells us about the fact that her husband hit her and abused her, left her deaf, in fact, partly deaf. So there's a very serious thread here about how men can treat women sometimes and one of the reasons that she gives for why he treated her in this way is that he spent all his time reading the book of wicked wives so a collection of misogynist tracts so he has spent so much time reading about how terrible women are that he then believes that and takes it out on a real woman his his wife and one of the things that the wife of birth says is that men have had the pen exclusively in their hands. So there haven't been women in literature before. Very few women have written texts. And so literature is biased. The canon is biased. And she talks about that really passionately and importantly. You know, she says a really important line is, who painted the lion? Tell me who. And what she means by that is she's referring to a fable in which there's a painting of a man triumphing over a lion And another man and lion are looking at this painting and the lion says, well, who painted that picture? You know, the point being, well, a man painted it so he made the man in the picture look good. But if a lion had painted it, it would have been a different story. And the wife of Bath relates that to gender, saying, well, all the stories have been told by men. So they're biased. You know, half of humanity has not been able to get their voice heard. So the wife of Bath is saying things that were urgent in the 14th century and are still urgent today. But we also care, I think, about what she says because of how she says it, because her voice for many people is very appealing and attractive. She is funny. She's self-deprecating. She laughs at herself. She tells us about her faults. She takes us into her mind and her memories and how her mind works. And so she really brings people along with her. And although she's talking about very serious things, she has a light touch in the way that she talks about them. So we go through the prologue and we care enormously. We're already, I think, very much on board with wanting to listen to her. And then we get into her tale. Now, the tale then takes us out of her life and into a completely different realm. And it opens in the long distant past 
in Arthurian Britain, so in a mythical past for someone in the 14th century, just as it is for someone today. And she opens with telling us about the fact that there's a knight riding about the countryside in Arthurian times. And again, for a reader then or for a reader now, we're expecting one thing and we don't get it. When you hear about this Arthurian knight, you expect him then to be rescuing women, looking after damsels in distress, maybe killing a dragon, that kind of thing. And that's not what happens. Again, we have a very serious message and he rapes someone. It's a very stark and terrible beginning to this story. And then she goes on again to tell a story with themes that are still very relevant today. The man goes on a journey to find out what women really want and all kinds of things happen. They include the transformation of a woman from one shape to another. Very importantly, the story includes a scene in which an older, ugly, poor woman proves to be the person who has the greatest ethical importance in the story, who's able to really explain to the young, handsome knight, who's the person who would usually have the ethical importance in a story, she explains to him what really matters in life. So again, this is a story that has a really important message then and now. And I think almost any reader or listener is really struck by that, by the ways in which this is really fundamentally medieval, but also the ways in which it speaks across time. That question of who painted the lion is so interesting to me. The wife of Bath is clearly asking it in her prologue and then answering it in her tale. She's painting the lion. And I I wonder, is your biography in some ways a historiographical response to that question? You know, a sort of who painted the lion about the wife of Bath and all the critics and clerks in her wake who dismissed her and dismissed women's authorship? Yeah, I think that's a really nice way of putting it. I think that there may be a couple of different ways in which I would think about that who painted the lion question as it relates to my book. The first is that there's a there's a kind of elephant in the room in that the wife of Bath is not a real woman. You know, so so we think about this, you know, the way that we have this passionate, eloquent voice saying, you know, we need to listen to women. Women haven't had the chance to tell their own stories. This is a and it's really important to stage this idea of the middle class, middle aged, ordinary woman telling a story. But she's not a woman. This is Chaucer, the, you know, the the important canonical male author who's really behind it. Nonetheless, of course, I think it's crucially important for literary history that he stages the idea of a female voice in this way. And one of the things that I do in the first half of my book is foreground lots of other women's voices and also women's lives and experience, women who didn't get to tell their own story and whose story hasn't been told before. So I weave the wife of Bath's story alongside, so for example, real medieval women writers, because this is the era, the late 14th century, when we first get named women writers writing in English. But also I use this idea of the biography to tell lots and lots of women's stories. And I like the idea of taking aspects of the wife of Bath and looking at real medieval women and using my voice to try to tell their stories, stories that people before haven't thought were important. But actually, I think lots of people do find fascinating, you know, these stories of the the 15th century duchess who married four times or when she was in her 60s, married a teenager or the, the silk women 
women in the 1360s who formed a kind of union to protest against price fixing or the maid who travels around Europe and abandons her employer to get a much better job in Rome. I mean, these women are amazing. But then, as you say, I also look at the way in which, right across time, so many readers and writers have felt really threatened by the idea of the lion, you know, getting this paintbrush, Um, the idea that this is a woman's voice, a woman saying, well, this is how women feel about the bias of the canon. Yeah, as you say, there are very few named female authors, even after the 14th century. But as you point out, one of and one of my favorite parts of the biography is actually when you talk about one of them, this contemporary of Chaucer's, Christine de Pizan, who you say is, you know, the closest analog that we have of the wife of Bath in history. Um, And I want to read a biography of her next in case you're looking for your next book idea. But (laughs) how does Christine fit in with Alison? How do they, you know, mirror each other or differ? Right. So Christine de Pizan, who's a a French writer, I mean, a really interesting woman who, after she's widowed and left with multiple dependents, um, her own mother and siblings, as well as her children, she decides to make a living by her pen and writes many books. The most important book for our purposes in what we're talking about today is her book of the City of Ladies. So again, you just written about 20 years, 15, 20 years after The Wife of Bath was written. And in this, she says that at the beginning, she was reading all these books, and they were all about how awful women are. And she was reading these books and feeling really depressed and thinking about all the women that she knew and thinking, well, none of the women that I know are like this. You know, I don't get it. All these authoritative texts say that women do these awful things. But I think about my friends and acquaintances and I just I just don't see it. And then this group of female kind of allegorical figures, so such as Reason, for example, come and visit her and say, look, you know, these books have all been written by men. You know, th- there is a terrible bias in literature, in the canon. And it's your job now to write a book of the City of Ladies, to construct a new edifice, which speaks against the bias of past texts. And so she then, you know, writes about women that are, that are good, that, that behave differently. So in that, that's a really close parallel to the, the idea of um, who painted the lion and the importance of, of listening to different kinds of voices. In other ways, she's really different from the wife of Bath. So, you know, the wife of Bath who, you know, really luxuriates in traditionally bad female behaviour. You know, so men before had often said women are so terrible because they you know, want to sleep with lots of men and drink too much and tell the husband secrets. And the wife of Bath goes, yeah, I drink too much and I sleep with different men. And I, but, you know, within marriage, but, you know, I, I get married lots of times and I tell my husband secrets and I trick them and I do all these things. And, and she, for most readers and listeners, they go along with her, you know, rather than thinking what a terrible woman, the way that she expresses it makes most people sympathise with her, I think. But Christine de Pizan, you know, doesn't say that that kind of behaviour is, is good. You know, she's advising women to be much more, um, I think, circumspect in their behaviour to, to men and, and within society. So, so there's lots of differences. But in terms of the, the approach to to voices, I think they're, they're really similar. That message of women's voices should be heard really you know, comes through in both texts. What's ironic about that with Christine, though, is that even though she did sort of take the high road and say, like, women, you should be this ideal version of yourself, for all that, 
a lot of her writing later when it was copied over by clerks her name her authorship was obscured yeah I mean so interesting so when I was looking at lots of different medieval female writers you see a real pattern so in the 15th century Christine de Pizan was a very very widely read author in England but there are lots of examples of people who translate her text into English and then they ascribe it to someone else and so Particularly, we get them saying that a man wrote it, but Christine is mentioned as someone who supported the man or who patronised him, who, you know, kind of suggested the idea, but her authorship is removed. And in some of the texts, so she, she is talked about as a nun, as someone who lived her life in a, in a convent. And it's a really interesting parallel to Marjorie Kemp. So Marjorie Kemp, who was an English woman who lived in the late 14th and early 15th century and dictated her book, the book of Marjorie Kemp, um, in the 1430s. And it's a, a kind of autobiography of, of her life. And she was someone who had more than a dozen children, was married, but then tried to have a life that was devoted to God. And she also travelled a great deal, like the wife of Bath. But when her book was printed, much of it was removed. So all the bits in which she's you know, you're struggling with sexual thoughts or suffering marital rape or thinking about Christ in, in a very erotic way, all of those bits which relate to her body, her desires, those kinds of things are taken out of the text and it becomes a much more anodyne and less threatening, less radical tract. And in the second printing by someone called Henry Pepwell in the early 16th century, he even puts in a preface in which he says that she was an anchoress, which is an enclosed nun. And her life was all about, you know, travel, being out in the world. And he he walls her up into a, into a cell, makes her into something very different. And these are really interesting parallels with what happens over and over again to the wife of Bath. Again, her text is silenced, though it always resurfaces. But I've given I give lots of examples of this in the book. So, for instance, you know, scribes who write on her manuscript and try to argue against her. And then a really interesting example in the 16th and 17th century, where there was an extremely popular ballad, The Wanton Wife of Bath. And printers were put in prison for printing it. The ballad was burnt, but it kept on resurfacing, being rewritten in, in different versions. And we see that happening right across time. People try to put her down, but she keeps popping up somewhere else, you know, over and over again. I would love for you to talk more about those scribes that you mentioned, some of whom argued with the wife of Bath quite vehemently. It's, you know, it's a very different way to think about reading, because with these manuscripts, you're almost forced to read the scribe's commentary at the same time as the text, because it's right next to it. Not that I can actually read Latin, but that's the impression you get looking at the page. And sometimes that commentary is kind of neutral, and sometimes it's just awful. There was this one example you talk about where it just seems like, man, the scribe should have been fired because he's <laughs> reading the text so badly. He wouldn't know humor if it hit him in the face. And there's this one line from the wife of Bath where she says, half so boldly can there no man swerve and lion as a woman can. And this guy just writes, it is true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So as you say, um, it was common for scribes to put some notes in the margins. Um, sometimes they're just little pointing fingers, which, you know, tell tell the reader what bits the scribe thinks are most important, for instance. Um 
sometimes, so most commonly they're little notes that tell you what the sources are, you know, that say, well, this bit comes from this text, you know, go to this bit of the Bible to see X, that, that, that kind of thing. But the wife of Bath, particularly her prologue, where she's talking about her own life, it attracts a different kind of commentary. And it tends to be very heavily glossed, as we say, you know, very, very um, intensive scribal comments. And there are some manuscripts where the scribe really, you know, he, you kind of worry about him in, in some ways. Um, because rather than just, you know, listing, you know, particular sources, the scribe takes on a kind of ethical position to argue against the wife of Bath. And you can see there's an anxiety here where the scribe is kind of worried that readers are going to go, oh, right, yeah, this, this, seems, this seems correct. I believe this woman, maybe octogamy, marrying eight times, maybe that's absolutely fine. You know? And the scribe wants to go say, hang on, look, this is what you should really be thinking. You know, read what I have to say. It is more authoritative. It's even in Latin, you know, which is better than English, and, you know, et cetera. And some of the examples I found really interesting you know there's one bit for instance when the scribe piles up in the margin you know six or seven different biblical examples about why essentially you shouldn't listen to women and they talk too much and they're they're awful and one of the examples is a quotation um from from James and and it's quoted in Latin but the translation is is something like um but the tongue of a woman no man can tame but when you look this up, you find out that what the Bible actually says is, but the tongue no man can tame. And he has inserted mulierum of a woman deliberately. So he's made it into a comment about women, which it isn't in the Bible. And, you know, hilariously, this is the person who's saying that you can't rely on women's speech. But he is the one who is misquoting the Bible, who is trying to claim to be authoritative, but is absolutely misrepresenting authority. Isn't that also the scribe who writes such a long block of text that it ultimately goes down to the part where the wife of Bath herself says men just love to gloss women? Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. So yeah, he just, he, he kind of shoots himself in the foot in various ways. Well, what was so threatening to him about people, you know, reading these texts and taking inspiration from them? Sure, like octagamy, yes. But is there something <laughs> deeper going on here that they would read Alison as so threatening? I think there's lots of ways in which she would seem threatening to many people, partly because she's arguing against very authoritative men such as Saint Jerome. You know, she's arguing against what they have to say. And not only that, but I think simply in existing, in suggesting that an ordinary woman's voice should be listened to, that that kind of person can argue against biblical authority, against priests. That itself is a really a challenging thing for many, for many medieval men. And I think that's part of Chaucer's bigger project as well of saying, well, let's listen to diverse voices. Let's listen to voices from, of people from a lower social class as well as a higher one. Let's challenge authority and hegemonic voices. But that for many people is particularly threatening when it's coming in the figure of a woman who's saying, well, actually, let's just throw hierarchy out of the window. Let's see what happens if people who don't have a voice are given voices. And, you know, potentially what she's then then saying is is overturning the kind of fundamental aspects of patriarchal society. 
I think it's interesting that you point out that rather depressingly, it's not the case that responses to Allison have become steadily less misogynistic across time. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned that because I think it's a really important point, not only for this book and this topic, but for anyone interested in history to think about. Because I think many of us have a, a kind of un, unexamined assumption that in general, things get better. You know, that that's what we, I think lots of us hope, but that's not what history actually shows us, you know, and actually as soon as you start to think about what's happened across history and time, we can see that that's, that's not right. History goes up and down and it turns back and forth. Um, and, you know, I, I found when I was researching this book that the most misogynistic responses came in the 20th century, the 1970s, probably were the, were the most misogynistic responses. I think that early on, in the early reception, we see a real oscillation, a back and forth, so that in scribal responses, there are some scribes that are writing comments which are you know, kind of supporting the wife of Bath. You know, they still want to make their voices heard, but they are writing things that are essentially agreeing with her. Um, in, the, in the ballad, which I already talked about, I mean, the existence of that ballad, it's about the wife of Bath getting to heaven's gate and arguing with all the patriarchs and saints from the Bible and from and from after the Bible and, and beating them in argument and eventually getting into heaven. So the actual ballad is quite a positive response to the wife of Bath, but the treatment of the ballad shows that people, you know, many people weren't ready for it. So the people who burnt it and put the printers in prison. But we can see there that people wanted to make her voice heard and then other people were trying to, to suppress it. It's really interesting to see those the, the tension, I suppose, between those different responses to her. And the second half of your book really goes into those responses, into all the ways that her story has been retold or incorporated in other kinds of narratives from Shakespeare on. Can you talk about how The Wife of Bath shows up later on in English literature in sometimes unexpected ways? Yeah, absolutely. So, this, I mean, this was such an interesting area of research for me because when I started out, I'd obviously done some some preliminary sketching out. I knew there were interesting things, but I found so much more than I was expecting. And it really was eye-opening how many authors have been influenced by The Wife of Bath in, in many different ways. So, I mean, you mentioned Shakespeare, and there were two different ways that I argue that The Wife of Bath influenced Shakespeare. So first of all, that Falstaff is essentially Shakespeare's Wife of Bath, that both Chaucer and Shakespeare invented a character who kind of exceeded their other characters, who has a life force that means that they get outside their own text, they pop up in lots of other texts you know, by, by their own author as well as later. Um, they talk in this extraordinary, immoderate way. Their, their lengthy sentences and pile-ups of clauses really show the way that they are imposing themselves on the world. They both misquote the same bits of the Bible and present themselves in a, in a really excessively bodily way. There are, there are all kinds of connections, which other people have noticed as well before me. But then I also argue um, something which no one else has noticed before, which is that The Wife of Bath's prologue and tale, I think, is a really important source for The Merry Wives of Windsor. I mean, we know that Shakespeare knew Chaucer's work very well. It's interesting to, to think about the fact that The Merry Wives of Windsor is a very unloved play these days, that these days people actually stage much more often The Taming of the Shrew, which is, you know, arguably a story about 
domestic abuse and the the kind of triumph of patriarchy in many ways. And in contrast, The Merry Wives of Windsor, a play about ordinary women, no one really likes today. You know, it's a play about middle-aged, middle-class women who triumph over a night, full staff, in fact. There's a fairy scene in the woods, which is very similar to the fairy scene in the woods in The Wife of Bath's tale. It's a story in which a knight is taught that women are not sexually available to him, just as happens in The Wife of Bath's tale. It's a story in which we see these mercantile women able to be kind of fun and bold and make their voices heard, but also be respectable. And I think Shakespeare really, you know, he grasped the really important things about what Chaucer was doing and transformed them in, in very interesting ways. But across time, there are so many examples. So, for instance, in the 18th century, you know, almost all the great writers from that era, so you know, Dryden, Pope, Gay, they all do things with the wife of Bath. Um, I can't go into all of them now, but for example, what Pope does is he you know, writes a version of her prologue in which he takes out all the sex. You know, he takes out all the bits where she talks about her genitals or about her liking to have sex in the morning. He just censors it completely. You know, this, he doesn't think it's appropriate. And it's a great example of the way that things that were acceptable and quite normal to talk about in the 14th century are no longer seen as being in, in decent taste in the, in the 18th century. And later on in that century, her tale goes over to France and Voltaire writes a version. She has had a global um, afterlife as well as an, an Anglophone afterlife. And then we, once we hit the 20th century, we have people such as James Joyce and, and Ted Hughes being inspired by her. So there's just a, a really extraordinary range of influence. Yeah, I want to talk about the responses that you end the book with, which is Black female poets who tell Alison's tale in Britain. And what's interesting, I think, in this case is like, unlike a lot of post-colonial responses to classical literature, like, you know, Aimé Cesar's interpretation of The Tempest or Virginia Woolf talking about Judith Shakespeare or any number of things that sort of rewrite the text, Writers like Zadie Smith aren't exactly doing a revisionist version of The Wife of Bath. And you could say that um, one of the poets you talk about, Jean Bintabriz, does a pretty loyal translation of the prologue simply into Jamaican patois. What appeals, I guess, to these writers about Chaucer? Why use The Wife of Bath for inspiration? I suppose the first thing I want to say is that I wouldn't want to suggest that they are all doing the same thing or or are inspired by exactly the same thing. Um, but it is really noticeable and interesting that in the last two decades, many more women, and particularly women of colour, have responded directly to the wife of Bath and have found things in her prologue and tale that are, are inspirational for them. So I think that Jean Bintabriz, as you say, um, quite a direct adaptation, but the fact of adapting it into non-standard English is itself really meaningful. And the fact that it's a performance poem so that you can, you can look it up on YouTube right now, The Wife of Birth in Brixton Market. And there are all kinds of things there that are resonant. So the fact that we see there this, a black woman, someone whose voice would usually not be seen as important, even more so 20 years ago. And that poem appeared in in a book called The Arrival of Bright Eye, which was about the Windrush generation, partly. so, And it was partly in commemoration of the arrival of the Windrush generation. So these were 
people from the Caribbean who came to Britain after the Second World War, after a change in, in, in the law. And in many ways, they've been very badly treated by the British government. And so placing this poem in that context and being performed by a black woman, I think it stakes a claim to British history in terms of whose history is this, but it also reminds all British people of the breadth of their history, that their history is in slave plantations and in the Caribbean, as well as in Chaucer's England and the Arthurian past of, of the tale, that all these things are part of modern British identity for everyone, you know, you know, black and, and white. And so I think that is a really important point. And that bringing in the non-standard English, which all the authors that I talk about in the last chapter of the book, they all use non-standard English in, in various ways. And, I mean, medieval literature is, is very fruitful for that because, of course, Chaucer's English was not standard English in that standard English didn't exist in Chaucer's time. He did write in the dialect that became Chaucer's English, but it didn't have that quite that same kind of prestige at the time. There was much more of an understanding that English was varied rather than hierarchical. And, you know, many people today me included, you know, we would like to, to embrace that idea that there are many Englishes, you know, that, that are all equally valid. The other examples in that last chapter, so Patience Agbagbi's telling tales in which she has the wife of Baffa, so a Nigerian-British response to the wife of Bath. Um, and, and another interesting thing about that one is that Patience Agbagbi, you know, wrote the wife of Baffa and then returned to it and rewrote it and expanded it. That's something that I've seen across time. People write a version and then later they go back to it. You know, the wife of Bath stays in people's imaginations and they want to go back and do more. And then the other example that I talk about, the most recent one, um, Zadie Smith's Wife of Wilsdon, um, which was first premiered in 2021. And again, I mean, you were talking about the way that these writers often stay quite closely with the text. And I suppose it's a good example of the fact that some of it is very closely attached to the text, but some of it is very much putting Chaucer into new contexts. Um, so on the one hand, we have quite a close translation, um, even using the iambic pentameter, so that the five stress, ten syllable line that Chaucer himself pioneered. Um, it sticks, you know, closely in many ways. But then there are crucial changes. So the Arthurian Britain becomes 18th century Jamaica, again, reminding us of the, the relevance to um, contemporary identity of both of those pasts of, of Britain. And then things like the Book of Wicked Wives is no longer a collection of tracts by people such as St. Jerome and Matthiolus. It's now a collection of books by people such as Jordan Peterson. So it's brought up to date and, and, and so in some ways we see this, you know, the difference, what kinds of books were read then, what kinds were read now. But it's also the relevance that we're still oppressed by misogynistic literature, which is very freely available and, you know, very prolific. We have links in the show notes to Marion Turner's new book, The Wife of Bath, a biography, as well as her previous biography of a real person, Geoffrey Chaucer. You can also find most of the references to the Wife of Bath's afterlives in the show notes, including Patience Agbabi's excellent spoken word performance of The Wife of Bafa and Jean Binta Breeze's The Wife of Bath in Brixton Market. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs>